Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Professor Christian Luprecht from RMC and Queen's University and international security expert will be joining us on his report on the effects of irregular border crossings for the McDonald-Laurier Institute. Also, any Huawei engagement in Canada's 5G network and the main global news event for 2020, which he says is the U.S. presidential election. Canadian business owners continue to close in Canada because of taxation, regulations, and government interference, and reopen in the United States. Jocelyn Bamford is the founder of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses in Canada, and she'll speak to this concerning reality. Former Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Brian Peckford on the rough road of politics and elections in Canada in 2019 and what to look for in the coming year. And Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Polling in the United States on the political war between the Republicans and Democrats as Americans begin the road to November 3rd and the U.S. presidential election. We always appreciate speaking with Dr. Christian Luprecht on this program. Um, He's a uh, remarkable man, and uh, he's a professor, of course, at the Royal Military College, also at um, Queen's University. He is a Monk Senior Fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Fulbright Research Chair in Canada and U.S. Uh, Relations at Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies. And Christian uh, is very good to us with, uh, with his time. On, on issues that matter to all of us. He, um, he's, he's with us now. I'm, I'm looking for some more information, but I can't find it. So, uh, Christian, great to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time. And there's some issues that we want to get at with you. And let me start with this one. The issue of migration, uh, irregular migration. You wrote a, a report for the McDonald uh, laurie Institute, and the, the title of it is Making Sense of Surging Irregular Border Crossing What's going on? What does the study tell you? So I think the background context here is important. So I'm, there's been lots of talk about the controversy uh, of, of, of people crossing irregularly into the country. Really, this is a matter primarily in Quebec where about 95% of those crossings take place. And some people believe that this is queue jumping and these are illegals. Uh, and other people say that they have a, a legally uh, a perfect right to lodge their refugee claims here. So what I'm trying to do in this study is provide some data to some of this context to show that uh, most of the individuals who are crossing are not people who are fleeing the Trump administration or Trump policies, but rather uh, that we can demonstrate empirically that the vast majority of them are people who, in one way or another, uh, entered the United States uh, legally or irregularly, but for the sole purpose of crossing from the United States into Canada. Uh, and so that the this overall narrative uh, um, uh, with regards to the Trump administration simply doesn't hold up. But I think what I'm also trying to flag is the broader context of migration that the refugee protection system that as it was designed um, after World War II served as well into 1950s, 60s and 70s. But what happened from the late 70s on and into the 1980s is that people around the world became more aware of standards of living in the West, uh, but most of whom could not uh, migrate legally to the West. Uh, people have increasingly been using since then the refugee system with the ease of communication and transportation 
um, to essentially try to make uh, the refugee system uh, a backdoor towards immigration. And so the challenge is that if we can't get a handle on the irregular crossings, um, it will undermine both our refugee protection system and our regular immigration system. And of course, one of the broad perversions that we have here is that the uh, UNHCR, so which looks after uh, um, refugees across some 23 million refugees across the world, last year had a budget of $2 billion, whereas Western countries spent $11 billion adjudicating refugee claims of 450,000 refugees. And so we need to re-institute uh, the integrity of both the refugee protection system that we had to make sure that the most vulnerable do get the protections they reserve, while at the same time making sure that uh, this does not become a mechanism for backdoor immigration by people who would not otherwise legally qualify to immigrate to this country. And what you found out, if I uh, read your report correctly, what you found out as well causes many people in this country to take another harder uh, look at immigration itself and maybe not have as favorable an impression of immigration as they had prior to being exposed to so much information about irregular border crossers. Am I right about that? Yes, yeah, so I think our immigration system, which has been tremendously successful for Canada, and we've got to make sure, make sure that our prosperity and our future hinges on the continued success of our immigration system, really is based on a social contract that, that has three fundamental premises. One is that we have well-managed uh, borders, and we know who's in the country, who's coming into the country, and on what grounds, uh, that there are individuals who have good prospects for economic, political, social uh, integration, socialization in Canada, and the expectation that people will make a meaningful contribution to the prosperity and well-being uh, of Canada and of Canadians. And I think when people get the sense that this social contract is being violated, uh, by a uh, minority of people, but nonetheless a significant minority of people, um, rightly or wrongly, then that undermines the entire integrity of the system on which both uh, our immigration system and our refugee system are built. And I think part of the challenge is that, um, of course, we, we already have, on a per capita basis, the highest legal immigration rate of any Western country in the world, the government is looking to increase that. Now, there are good arguments for doing so in terms of prosperity, in terms of population aging, uh, in terms of our tax system. Um, but uh, there's then also the challenge of are we able to continue to socialize um, that many individuals successfully into Canadian norms, into the Canadian economy, um, and into the Canadian uh, so social and political uh, fabric. If we then add on top of that uh, a growing number of irregular migrants, and this is a story that will continue to prevail given that in the next 30 years we'll have another 3 billion people on the planet, um, then this poses a challenge. And the real challenge on this is, of course, that once you make it to Canada, your chances of being ever deported from this country uh, are minimal. We currently have 18,000 deportation orders out, of which only 3,000 are actionable. So basically, um, very few people ever end up being deported for a whole variety of reasons. Um, uh, and so that's the broader concern. And so that's the data that I'm trying to put to this story um, and uh, try to dispel some of the myths and also some of the highly ideologically driven policy behind this so that we can actually get some sensible public policy um, on this particular issue. And if nothing else, we need to have an informed discussion, uh, democratic discussion as Canadians. Um, about the situation.
If you go to mcdonaldlaurier.ca, mcdonaldlaurier.ca, and uh, and look for Dr. Christian Luprecht's study, Making Sense of Surging Irregular Border Crossings, you will find it there. Let me ask you about, and this is something we've talked about this year with you, and no doubt we'll be talking about it in 2020. And again, we're bridging 2019 and 2020 on the program this weekend. Huawei, um, major news story in Canada for a number of issues and a number of reasons. The one I want to focus on and one that we've talked to you about in the past, and you testified in Parliament about this, is Huawei is pushing Canada to be allowed to be part of the new 5G network. And uh, the last time you were with us, you explained it was about switches, and we're not talking about people turning lights and light light switches. Uh, what do, what's your concern about Huawei being involved at all with a five G network in this country? What did you tell Parliament? So data is effectively the currency of the twenty first century. So it's like what oil and gas were to the twentieth century. And so whoever controls data is ultimately going to con- be able to control the destiny of the twenty first century. And it's very clear the Chinese government has quite intentionally built out. Huawei as part of what's sometimes known as digital Silk Road in order to control the global data traffic. Um, now, in and of itself, some Huawei products are perfectly reasonable, perfectly legitimate. Uh, the challenges, so switches, so those are your mobile phone towers and your, your, your internet switches that route your internet traffic, um, are able to control that traffic, throttle that traffic, read that traffic. Um, and also uh, divert our traffic through China, as uh, as uh, has been done uh, at times in the past for a limited period of time. Um, and so my concern with Huawei is threefold. One is that there's the geostrategic concern, and uh, this is well known. This is what um, the U.S. Uh, uh, the Intelligence Committee, both the House and the Senate, have written to Canada about um, the concern of having Huawei switches um, in our uh, in our critical infrastructure. But there's two other concerns. One is that Huawei has a long record of being involved with some of the most dubious regimes in the world, building out their surveillance infrastructure, and of course Huawei. Has, is also a major enabler of the uh, human rights offenses uh, that are transpiring in Xinjiang. And so Canadians, given that Huawei has said they want to expand their research development footprint in Canada, and that given that Huawei has already benefited over the last 10 years from at least $103 million Canadian dollars in subsidies, the question is whether Canadians feel that it is appropriate for a company that is effectively enabling authoritarian regimes and large-scale human rights abuses in China and across the world, that this is a company that we really want to be welcoming with open arms. The third concern is that um, as the Huawei Evaluation Center, the GCHQ, the British Signals Intelligence Organization that set up some years ago, uh, they put out an annual report, and that report uh, shows that over the years the quality of Huawei equipment has gotten worse. So we don't know what 5G infrastructure is going to look like, but we know it's going to be infinitely more complex than the 4G infrastructure that we have today. So why would we put equipment that has been shown uh, by one of the most important signals intelligence organizations in the world to be substandard equipment? Why would we allow that into what is going to be the most important and critical piece of infrastructure that we're going to have in Canada in the mm-hmm. 21st century? Mm-hmm. As you as you speak, I can't help but wonder if the uh, members of Parliament, I don't mean to be dis- disrespectful unnecessarily to them, but I wonder if they knew what you were talking about. So, look, the House of Commons Standing Committee on National Security and uh, and uh, uh, Public Safety 
put out a uh, fairly good report last June after many months of hearings uh, on this particular issue. Now, many of the uh, of the uh, recommendations are fairly um, blue sky, high level sort of recommendations, but nonetheless, I think it shows that uh, some parliamentarians uh, do understand some of this issue. Um, and that there's an increasing attention to this. And ultimately, we live in a democracy, and so Canadians decide that uh, we might want to let Huawei equipment have access to those critical switches in our infrastructure. Well, I guess that's a decision that uh, that we might make. Okay. But I think that this is an insurance policy, I think, that we want to buy. Uh, if we can see how China is dealing with countries such as Canada and other allies when they're displeased about our political actions, now imagine if China could throttle, divert, or entirely stop our data and internet, tra- internet traffic Scary. in this country as a Scary. way to essentially extort us politically. Yeah. And I think we can put ourselves in that situation. Please stand by, Dr. Christian Luprecht. We're going to come back and speak with him about uh, the one question I asked. One, one question that I asked uh, Christian in an email was, is there a, a subject, an issue that you would like to add to what I had uh, suggested? And uh, and he's in the email that I re- received in return was this line: the defining global issue of 2020 will be Trump's re-election. We will speak with Dr. Luprecht about that as we move toward 2020, just days away now. Dr. Christian Luprecht from Queen's University and the Royal Military College, and one of the hats. Dr. Luprecht wears, of course, is that he is the Fulbright Research Chair in Canada-U.S. Relations at Johns Hopkins University's School for Advanced International Studies. Christian, we have about two minutes left, and when I asked you for something from that you might want to speak to to this issue uh, today in our transition from 19 to 20, uh, the defining global issue of 2020, Donald Trump and re-election. Could you speak to that, please? Yeah, so I think there's a sense in Washington that for the last four years, uh, many of the departments and agencies have sort of battened down the hatches in the hopes that they can wait Trump out. Um, but uh, if Trump gets reelected, it will allow him to make fundamental changes uh, because he will then have all his people in place in the key positions in Washington, and he'll have another four years to make the changes that he wants to make. And so I think it is really the next four years that will be very much defining years because I think... Uh, what Trump will do in the coming four years will be very difficult to undo for any future executive administration. Um, and given that there's nobody in the Democratic field who currently looks like they might ultimately be able to beat uh, Donald Trump, uh, it would appear that as Canada, we need to have a quite forward-looking strategy here of not just how we cope with another four years of the Trump administration, uh, but also how we uh, position ourselves for both sovereignty and success in terms of Canada-U.S. relations uh, in light of the structural changes that are likely to come in terms of the United States and our bilateral relationships. And I would say that heading into uh, 2016, Donald Trump is in a far stronger position, much stronger, significantly stronger, not only as the incumbent, but in a much stronger position to be reelected than he was at this time in 2015 when he was a de- declared candidate. But very few people knew really much about what he was going to be doing. I mean, he'd been in primaries, but there was there was still so much unknown. He's in much, well, you tell me, is he in a much stronger position now than he was four years ago at this time? Yeah, so look, I think there's a silver lining to this. As much as Canadians have a dislike for President Trump, historically, Canada has always fared better, especially economically, under Republican executive administrations than under Democrats. 
Um, and so, and it appears that the last four years, economically, I mean, have been quite favorable to both Canada, to the United States, and the Canada-U.S. trading relationship. And so, perhaps there is a bit of a silver lining here. Um, but in terms of certainly our multilateral relationships with our allies in Europe, our multilateral relationships in the Asia-Pacific, um, and our multilateral trade relationships, those, I think, will be coming under even greater strain. Uh, in another four years of the Trump administration, that has major implications for our ability to assert our foreign policy interests um, uh, abroad uh, over the coming years. Christian, thank you so much for the time, and I uh, wish you all the very best for 2020, and uh, we'll be calling you on you again soon, obviously. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and uh, a happy new year. Thank you. Dr. Christian Luprecht. We, of course, had our federal election on the 21st of October. We all remember the uh, results from that, but the results will be more than just the numbers and the distribution of seats. The results will be significantly deeper than that. The Conservative Party, of course, is now going to have a new leader. They will, uh, over the next few months, go through the the various exercises they have to go through and uh, to establish who the leader is going to be. There's some <laughs> argument that uh, some people are suggesting that the Liberal Party of Canada has already started to um, to uh, remove power from Justin Trudeau with the ascension of Christopher Freeland as not only Deputy Prime Minister, but also taking on responsibilities that had previously been really the responsibility of the Prime Minister and the PMO. Is there, is there a future um, that suggests that the Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau, may not be Prime Minister by the time the next federal election rolls around. I have money on that, by the way. And uh, to talk to us about this and more in his inimitable style is one of this program's favorite guests. As I said, I never go through a week where I don't see emails. Uh, when is Brian Peckford going to be on their program next? You haven't had him on for a few days. Uh, I think I, uh, Premier, I think I could just leave and you can just do the show. How's that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but I do appreciate the uh, the comments that some people are making, and uh, oh, it's more than some. Yeah, and wish them a merry Christmas and a happy new year. Uh, although my my optimism is somewhat tainted this year from what it has been other years, and I'm not so sure about Ms. Friedland. She she would have to go through an extensive leadership contest, and I'm not sure that the Liberal members uh, across the country want Ms. Friedland as the next Prime Minister. Nor am I sure that uh, Justin Trudeau wants to quietly leave the political scene. Of course, a lot will depend on how he's, how he's, he's viewed a couple of years from now. Let me ask you this. Um, clearly, uh, Christopher Freeland has taken on responsibilities that we wouldn't have expected. Certainly, she has responsibilities Sheila Copps didn't have when Ms. Copps was the deputy prime minister to Jean Chrétien. Yeah, and she never became prime minister. She never became prime minister. I'm not suggesting that Christopher Freeland would become prime minister. Right. My, my, I'm just looking at the Liberal Party now. And I'm asking myself, do they want to go into another federal election with Justin Trudeau leading them? And I don't think they I don't think they're they've resolved that issue yet. And that's why I have a hundred bucks and a lunch on it. <laughs> I wasn't gonna mention that, but I got into a debate with my good friend Jeff Manishin, lawyer, criminal lawyer in, in Hamilton. We have a, a monthly lunch, uh, Jeff and uh, former police officer Mike Joy, retired police officer, and sometimes the chief of police, Eric Gert, joins us as well. And and uh, Jeff is a dyed-in-the-wool Justin Trudeau supporter. And so I said, buddy, it's 100 bucks in lunch, 
Justin Trudeau will not be the leader of the Liberal Party come right. the next federal election. I may lose the bet, but I don't think so. Well, I you may you may be right, but I, I think it's too early to put too much money on it, and a hundred dollars would be is, is not bad. So that's the limit. As far as, far as the bet goes, that's fine. But uh, uh, knowing the, the the Trudeau instinct, like I do, having known his father for years, and now witnessing from afar uh, the the son, uh, you know that they they are political animals, and unless they're they know they're going to be forced out, they'll stay. Premier, what uh, what's what stays with you when we make the transition from 2019 to 2020? What is going to what baggage are you carrying with you across the line? And it's not just the federal government. We had a provincial government election in uh, the province of Alberta, and of course, Jason Kenney is now a formidable challenge as premier of the province to uh, Mr. Trudeau, and uh, we're going to see some battles there, I'm sure. What are you carrying across that 2019-2020 line with you? The main thing that I carry with me into uh, 2020 is that we have our two major political leaders who are not honest individuals. In the case of the Prime Minister, he broke the law four times a couple of years ago. He broke the law again this year, as declared by the Ethics and Conflict of Interest Commissioner. And nothing has been done, and he gets reelected, or his party gets the majority of seats. And then we have Andrew Scheer, who everybody thought, even though he wasn't that effective a leader, at least he was an honest bloke. And now we find that his party was financing his children to go to private school, which is not what the party is supposed to be doing with their money. So um, I'm carrying into 2020 a very... Um, bothersome and, and frustrating um, attitude that our two major leaders uh, are seriously flawed, and that, that doesn't serve Canada very well going forward. Do you think this reflects on those two individuals, or does it also reflect on the political process? I think it also reflects on the political process. Uh, I, 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 I hasten to say that, but uh, you're almost, you almost have to conclude that. Uh, and, and some people will say to me, well, you know, it was just that Mr. Scheer was not that effective and the conservatives weren't that effective, and therefore that's why Mr. Trudeau got back in. We all know that he's not an honest bloke, but, uh, you know, the devil we know is better than the devil. That doesn't look like he's very going to be very effective. And I, just, I just don't buy those kinds of arguments. I mean, I want to have a leader in our country who's honest and, uh, you know, we don't have that right now, and we wouldn't have had it with Mr. Scheer got in. So I think that doesn't bode well for our democracy. And, and uh, that, that's a really great concern to me because everything flows from that. Our economic policy flows from that. Our social policy flows from that. And our foreign policy flows from that. And if we're starting at the base in a dishonest kind of circumstance, then you can only conclude that various of these policies that I just articulated will also be very flawed. You know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about um, conversations I've had with uh, Michelle Simpson, former Liberal MP and seatmate to Mr. Trudeau during okay. question period and from 2000, um, leading up to the 2011 election. Uh, and Michelle got into significant difficulty with the whip of the party, the federal Liberal Party, and significant difficulty with Michael Ignatieff when he was the leader of the party because what Michelle did is she listed her MP expenses online. 
And yep. she was told by the party, cut it out. Yep. Uh, and she said, no, I'm going to do this because my constituents have a right to know what I'm spending their money on. She was uh, offered, she's told us on the air many times, she was offered uh, if she would play ball, she would get a much bigger office. She would get an office with its own bathroom, washroom. Uh, yeah, and she and she would uh, she would she would benefit from playing ball and not listing her expenses. When she refused to do that, Premier, yep. her speaking privileges in Parliament were removed entirely. Yep. She couldn't even acknowledge publicly in Parliament the death of one of her constituents, a 21-year-old Canadian soldier in Afghanistan, yep, yep. nor was she allowed to acknowledge the death of a Toronto police officer who was yep. killed by a madman driving a snowplow. Yep. Well, that, that, that's, that, that, that's, you know, and uh, those kinds of stories can be repeated over and over again. Just this past week, I had an MP reply to me when I asked him why doesn't he try to at least, if, if he has no power within his party, at least put a private member's bill on the on the uh, on the docket so that we know where he stands on a couple of issues this one had to do with health care mm-hmm. he got back to me and said there's no way in this parliament that i'll ever be able to get a private member's bill on this parliament for the next two or three years three or four years because i would be number 201 or 202 or something well, yeah, it only yeah. comes up ever so often and you know how often parliament meets so it's impossible for me to get a private member's bill in this next parliament. So that, that's the nature of our parliamentary system today. It's in, it's in deficit, as is our financial budget. And so uh, some major reform has to, do, has to be done. And, uh, you know, if the Conservative Party is to be uh, believed at all going forward, then some new uh, leader is going to have to come forward and, and bring in, and not only promise, but commit to a major reform to our democratic uh, institutions. Let me take a break, Premier, and then I want to ask you what you think, uh, whether, whether 2020 actually is an opportunity for the Conservative Party and whether you think they'll have uh, what it takes to recognize an opportunity and take full advantage of it or whether they're just going to do what political parties have done in the past, and that is have a convention, not be able to decide among the front runners who the leader potentially would be, and then go through a bunch of ballots and decide on uh, candidate number seven who uh, really sh- should probably just be in the parliamentary gulag or the backbenches, and uh, and then you end up with what you've seen uh, repeating itself over and over. We'll come back with the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford. I also want to ask the premier before we're done with the uh, segment, what his thoughts are, what story internationally has really stuck out for him in 2019. Back to our friend... Brian Peckford, former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Premier, when it comes to the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, and I know you wrote them a letter about a year ago as a former premier, and they didn't have the smarts or the or the uh, courtesy to reply. So I that, that bothers me. I, I'm looking at this party and looking at their performance, looking at their performance during the election. You can't blame Sheer for everything. Are they going to be able to seize opportunity and find themselves a leader and maybe, if necessary, create the dynamics for a, to, 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 to put a leader in place who's going to be able to successfully challenge the Liberals and Trudeau? I mean, you have to remember, in 2011, the Liberals were down to 32 seats. Yeah, <clears throat> I, 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 I hope so, although I'm not 
I'm not. I'm not optimistic. I, I you know, one has to say uh, they're the alternative government, right? The, the you know the second largest party, and in, in, in popular vote, they're the largest. Uh, and uh, you know, one would think that they would be able to overcome in the, in the next election. We, you and I, shouldn't be talking this way. Pardon? You and I shouldn't have to be talking this way. No, no, exactly, exactly. And I think what your phraseology a couple of seconds ago was was quite on. Will the Conservative Party create the circumstance whereby some new person, you know, younger person yep. who's interested in politics and has great leadership ability yep. <coughs> comes forward because they see the environment is ripe for a, a, a true conservative voice in Canada? That's the great question, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm not sure that the answer is affirmative. Is there, among the names that have been bandied about and suggested over the last weeks, is there somebody you would say, yep, that's the person who could fit all those parameters, all those needs? Uh, I've just gone through the list again this morning before I came on this show, and uh, you know, I'm scratching my head and so on. But uh, the only person to try to be somewhat positive, some, you know, when I finish this segment, and people say, well, you know, Peckford is so negative on everything. Um, to try to be as, as, as fair and as realistic as I can, the only person I see there that may be able to rise to that kind of level that we're talking about <clears throat> is Mr. Bernard Lord, the former premier of New Brunswick. Uh, he, he was a very good premier. Uh, he hasn't, he's not on the national agenda. He's not well known, but he was a premier of New Brunswick, and he's now an executive in the private sector. But... Uh, I remember him, and I remember uh, what he tried to do and so on. He may be able, have the potential to rise uh, up and become an effective conservative voice in Canada and win the country. That's the only one that I think, right now at least, at this moment, talking to you, that I see on the horizon which may have a chance. You know, it, it's interesting because I think what people are looking for is a name they recognize, and at the same time, they don't want that. So it's uh, yes. it, isn't it, it's interesting, isn't it? I want somebody I recognize because I somebody I can instantly say, yeah, that might be all right. But then I don't want anybody I, I can recognize because right. they're part right. of the right. part of the old team, and yes. uh, it, it is it is a significant task that the conservatives are facing because they're going to have to not only get somebody who can appeal to Canadians, but somebody who can actually say, this is our agenda, this is what we're going to be doing, and yes. it'll appeal to conservatives, and it'll sound at least acceptable to people who aren't conservatives. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And, and you, they need to, you know, specifically articulate a vision forward, which is conservative-leaning, mm-hmm. but which is attractive and good for the country in the long term. What's the, uh, in, the in the less than a minute we have left, what's the international story from 2019 for you? The three for me. One is the Hong Kong protester, yes. two is the British people, and three is, thankfully, in Madrid, they didn't pass more fanatic uh, rules as it relates to environmental protection in the world. Perhaps there will be some realism in the environmental movement as a result of what happened in Spain. But number one is the Hong Kong protester who's standing up for freedom and liberty, which is that which is jeopardized around the world in many, even democratic countries. Bremer, it's always great talking to you. I mean, I say this, uh, I say this to you repeatedly, but it is. 
And I appreciate you coming on the show, and um, and I look forward to speaking with you. And I know our listeners look forward to hearing from you in 2020. All the best to you and to your bride for the new year. Thank you very much, and all the best to our listeners. Thank you. Brian Peckford, the uh, former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. November the 3rd will be the day when Americans vote for their next president, whether it's going to be uh, a second term for Donald Trump or whether it's going to be a Democratic candidate. Uh, Joe Biden is, I think, still leading the rest of the crowd and that uh, bus full of candidates the Democrats have put forward. Biden, interestingly enough, has uh, muttered something about not being willing to testify at a Senate impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And then he said something about, well, no, I would, but Joe Biden does tend to contradict himself from from minute to minute. But it would be a very interesting campaign to watch uh, Trump and Biden. Now, I went back. If you go to my uh, webpage, RoyGreenShow.com, or you go to my Twitter feed, at the Roy Green Show, there is a link there to the commentary that I posted yesterday. And what it's about is my notes on my 2016 calendar, what I do each year is I still tack up a calendar and then I either write notes in the margin on specific days where something interesting took place or I put a sticky note there if I don't have enough space. And uh, I went back and looked about looked at what I wrote and what I noted particularly in 2016, including the day that uh, Hillary Clinton said that 50% of Donald Trump supporters were deplorables. Boom! And the next day she tried to, uh, she tried to walk it back, but that didn't work. And so you can check. You just just read the commentary, and you'll see where uh, where where it where it where it took me, including November the eighth, which was the election day in two thousand and sixteen, where on that particular day, on that particular day, some polling firms in the United States were absolutely convinced that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win by a huge margin. One firm I read about in Newsweek magazine gave her an eighty-four percent chance of becoming president of the United States. That was on election day. Another firm, a big one, had Clinton uh, winning a 72% chance of becoming the president, and Trump was around, I don't know, 12, 14% opportunity. Contrast that with what we heard all year in 2016 when our good friend, Fran Coombs, the managing editor for Rasmussen Polling in the United States, joined us regularly to talk about the campaign. And Fran told us again and again and again and again that it was very close that it was extremely close, that it, sometimes it was too close to call. And guess who was right? Mr. Coombs was correct. Uh, Rasmussen was a lot closer than those polling firms. Can you, hey, Fran, thanks for coming back to the show. Happy New Year to you. Uh, 2016, on November the 8th, Hillary Clinton has an 84% chance of becoming president of the United States. What kind of polling was that? Uh, maddening to us, I'll tell you, Roy. Um, I still remember the New York Times having a front-page article about six, seven weeks out from Election Day saying statistically it was impossible for Trump to win, and therefore it was almost we almost didn't need to have an election because the polls showed that the, Hillary was so far ahead there was there was no way that Trump could recover. Is my memory serving me correctly? Was there a headline ready to, to go in the New York Times or in a major United States newspaper in 2016 congratulating Clinton on her victory, or did they all have headlines ready? Well, I'm sure they all had headlines ready saying Hillary wins. 
Uh, I'm sure none of them had a backup Trump wins headline. So here we are. We're uh, final weekend of 2019. And I was talking to some other guests as we were going through the show today. And I, uh, I made the point that in, in the final days of 2019, Donald Trump is in a far stronger position to become president of the United States, re- to repeat as president of the United States, than he was at this particular time four years ago at the end of 2015. Uh, as the incumbent, he's in a much stronger position. But he has four years of baggage, four years of opposition, four years of the Democrats uh, accusing him of being guilty of impeachable offenses. How does that uh, weigh out with Americans? Where do they? Where do the? How does the American public see Donald Trump heading into 2020? Well, I would I would have to say, despite the impeachment vote, that Trump goes into 2020. I agree with you, far stronger than he was. He's certainly a known commodity, but we also know that he's done at least as far as Americans' pocketbooks are concerned, he's done a lot of good. And uh, to me, the two most telling polls, really, after the impeachment vote in the House, uh, was that the stock market basically reacted positively. uh, And our daily presidential tracking poll went up slightly after the impeachment vote, and uh, Trump is still tracking pretty much where he's been for the last 18 months. And uh, and so if an election were we always ask this question, if an election were held today and Donald Trump were running against uh, you pick him from the Democrats, what would happen? I suspect Trump would be reelected. I, I mean, I, I think we have to be realistic. There's more Democrats in this country and there's a lot, a lot of just blind hatred on the other side. But uh, I don't think I think Trump would would win. Uh, it wouldn't be handily, but he would he would win. Comf- he would win certainly in the Electoral College comfortably. What happens uh, now, Fran, with the with the uh, the trial in the Senate? First of all, is that going to take place, or is Nancy Pelosi going to hold on to those articles of impeachment for God knows how long? And uh, and the and the Republican majority in the Senate will say, "Hey, we have a right to say uh, we'll set this aside. We'll vote on it, and uh, and bye bye to your to your impeachment vote in, in 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 the House." Is that likely to happen? I think the day the, the Democrats had the impeachment vote and did not pick up a single Republican vote was pretty much the death of the impeachment drive. Uh, she's holding on to those documents. They're hoping to get some, uh, as you know, Schumer's been pushing to keep the uh, impeachment investigation open so that they can keep fishing to try to find something else. Uh, but I think ultimately the Republicans will will dispose of this thing very quickly. Are the Democrats doing this because they well, obviously, this, they, they, they hate Donald Trump, uh, even though Nancy Pelosi took after uh, uh, James Rosen when he suggested she hated uh, Donald Trump and gave him a lecture. But they, they obviously have massive dislike for the man. But do they, do they actually believe that they need to create this kind of dynamic because their own field isn't strong enough to take him on? Or is this just a, the sort of the artillery barrage that's, that's set to soften up the, uh, the Trump campaign before the Democrats really get going? Right. Well, well, Roy, I think it's a kind of a combination of things. I mean, it certainly was was driven for quite a while still from their shock that Hillary Clinton lost. Um, I'm sure there's certainly among some of the blinded, more blinded members, even after the Mueller report came out, there's this idea that Trump's just doing wrong every day. Uh, and then also, I think there was almost an inevitability to it. Uh, uh, a certain percentage of Democratic voters expected an impeachment vote, wanted an impeachment vote. 
Uh, and if the House Democrats didn't deliver it, they were scared that they might be uh, penalized in the next election. Do the Democrats find themselves in a position now where a majority of them, perhaps not Pelosi, perhaps not Schumer, perhaps not a few of the more recognizable names, but a significant number of them say, I wish we hadn't gone down this impeachment road? I, well, they may feel that in their heart of hearts, but no one is going to say that. I mean, if there's, if there's one thing we know about the Democratic Party over the years, they are ruthless uh, when it comes to making members toe the line. And if you don't toe the line, you're penalized. You can lose chairmanships. You can lose uh, uh, money directed to your state. Uh, they have no hesitation doing that, which is one reason why they have such, such uh, you know, party-line votes and things like that in a way the Republicans can never quite get together. What are American voters telling you about how they feel about this impeachment process going forward? Do American voters, by and large, want to see it in the Senate, want to see a trial in the Senate, or are they just not paying that close attention, just fed up? I, I think I think the Americans are beginning to lose attention, are, are beginning to, to not care more and more. I mean, there are certain, as I was saying earlier, diehard Democrats uh, who actually truly believe the Senate is going to impeach Trump and remove him, I mean, or is going to remove Trump from office now that he's been impeached. And uh, there, there's a certain probably sizable percentage of Democrats that still believe that that could happen. Uh, but it's not going to happen because it would be, if, for the Republicans to even talk out loud about that, would be a death sentence for any of them who are running for re-election. Uh, and uh, so I, and our numbers are showing a slow shift, uh, but that's why I'm saying the real polls are the stock market doesn't care. Trump's approval ratings are staying the same. So I, this says to me, uh, that Americans are not getting on the impeachment bandwagon. What are going to be the critical issues in this election campaign in 2020, as far as issues are concerned, uh, Fran? What, what do Americans want to want to hear from their politicians? Because they're looking at a, I mean, you you as Americans are looking at Washington, and you have this dysfunctional reality in front of you. We have a dysfunctional reality, but I don't think ours is as bad as yours. Well, right, again, it really depends on where you sit. I mean, from, from where I sit and from a lot of the people I talk to, Trump's, Trump's knocking out our enemies. He's, he's leveling the trade playing field. The economy's doing well because he's getting regulation out of there. Um, so yeah, he's putting good judges, uh, uh, non-activist judges on the bench. So, again, if you're a Republican, if you're a conservative to moderate person, you're thinking, hey, this looks pretty good. Uh, if, you know, if you're... A liberal Democrat, then of course, this is your worst nightmare. Is, uh, is is Biden likely going to be the nominee for the Democrats, and how do you think he would fare in a one-on-one against Trump? Because you know it's, he's going to try to turn it into a macho contest. He's already said he'd like to get into a fight behind yeah, the schoolyard. Well, okay. well, well, first of all, he may get it by default. I mean, the the the, the field of candidates they've got is is. I mean, they know that they, it's a pathetically weak field. Uh, and so, yes, Biden may end up getting it by default, uh, but, uh, you know, Trump uh, Trump will crush him like a bug in debates, I'm afraid. And, and Obama's done nothing to help Biden. No, in fact, we, uh, if we were to believe this reporting, the story was the other day that uh, Obama was encouraging his supporters to get behind Warren. Fran, hold on. I will come back and we'll talk some more with Fran Coombs, our good friend and managing editor at Rasmussen Polling in the United States. We're back uh, with Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, polling firm in the United States. Uh, It's rasmussenreports.com. Again, you can sign up for uh, their reports 
online on the uh, election, which is going to be uh, hitting high gear in a matter of days with the Iowa caucuses just uh, six weeks away. Fran, I'm looking at a column that you wrote uh, for Rasmussen Wednesday, November 9, 2016. And uh, so the day after the after the election, you wrote in part in a survey released just yesterday, most voters told us that the election would be decided on the controversies that surrounded the presidential candidates, not the issues. Who created those controversies? Voters said the media, not the candidates, set the agenda in the presidential campaign and that the media were more interested in controversy than in the issues. Yet last month, he wrote, 62% of voters said a candidate's specific policy proposals are more important than their character. Maybe that should have been the tip-off, because when it comes to the issues, Trump has long had the advantage over Clinton, according to Rasmussen Reports polling. See the same thing developing this time? Well, I don't think Trump is going to lose any votes that he got in 2016. I think, if anything, people that were lukewarm about him are going to be stronger supporters because they now see what he's he's actually capable of. Uh, the problem for Democrats is going to be uh, enthusiasm. Yes, media is going to try to flog controversy. I mean, what has the entire uh, Trump presidency been but one controversy after another fan by the media? Uh, that's why Trump tweets. He can, he can get over the media and get, get his real message out there. Uh, but the problem is, dem- is, for, is for the Democrats, Roy, really, because they've got, as you know, that's come up now, there's it, the whiteness of the candidates. Uh, yes. Are Warren and Sanders supporters going to fall behind Biden if he becomes the nominee? Uh, let's have some, some real divisions in their ranks. Yeah, we're having a little trouble with the phone. I hope it'll square itself away. One thing that I found, uh, friend, the other day, and I included it in my uh, in my. Uh, uh, editorial commentary at RoyGreenShow.com is this. Uh, I wrote, uh, the Democratic Party's immediate response to the very first announcement made by Donald Trump declaring that he was seeking the GOP presidential nomination. On June 16, 2015, the Democrats issued the following news release. Quote, today Donald Trump became the second major Republican candidate to announce for president in two days. He adds some much-needed seriousness that has previously been lacking from the GOP field, and we look forward to hearing more about his ideas for the nation, end quote. That's from the Democrats. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. In 2015. <laughs> <laughs> that never happened. I looked at that and I said, wait a minute, I have to, I have to, I have to uh, include that in my commentary. So look, uh, the Iowa caucuses in six weeks, and then that's the primaries across the country. Are we going to see a repeat of, uh, of uh, 2016, with the exception that we won't hear Donald Trump uh, talking about uh, Little Marco and, uh, and Low Energy Jeb? Yeah, I mean, I think we can, like I said, I think the, the action is clearly on the Democratic side. And, you know, if I was a betting man, I'd have to say that Biden would stumble through it and get the nomination. Although, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said he would not be the nominee. Um, but I think, you know, it, when, when you stack him up against the others, he's just going to have the edge from, from Democrats who really would think they can win this election. Uh, but the problem is going to be after you have the caucuses and New Hampshire and some of these others, where are the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren voters going to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael Bloomberg? You know, I, I just have a very hard time taking his candidacy seriously. He's got a lot of money to spend, but I just I just don't think he... He can stay in as long as he wants to because he's loaded, but I just don't see him going anywhere. 
It's going to be fascinating, and it's going to be the international story of 2020. Fran, thank you for the time. Uh, I always appreciate speaking with you and uh, wish you and your family the very best for 2020. Same to you, Roy. Happy New Year. Thank you, sir. Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports in the United States. I just found that that little piece from from the uh, Democrats, the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, after Donald Trump announced his intention to run for president, June 16, 2015, the reply from the Democrats today, Donald Trump became the second major Republican candidate to announce for president in two days. He had some much-needed seriousness that has previously been lacking from the GOP field, and we look forward to hearing more about his ideas for the nation. That was from the Democrats. Now, on this issue of Canadian companies deciding that they're going to move to the United States as we bridge from 2019 to 2020. This is what we're doing this weekend. We're looking at stories and issues from this year and then transposing some of it into what is likely to happen in the next 12 months, 2020. On this issue, joining us on the program is Jocelyn Bamford, founder and president of the Coalition of Concerned Canadian Manufacturers and Businesses. Uh, She's also a business owner in Ontario. And it was Jocelyn who made me aware of what uh, what's going on with businesses relocating south of the border. Jocelyn, good to talk to you again. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thanks, Roy. It's always a pleasure to join you and your listeners. So we had this surge of interest and stories about Canadian businesses moving to the United States. And it went on for three, four weeks and then everything went quiet again, as though it had stopped. Has it stopped? No, of course it has only intensified because a lot of business owners were just sitting back and waiting to see what happened with the federal election. And a lot of them have told me that if the outcome was Trudeau getting back in power, they would absolutely start looking at relocating. Not because they want to. It's the last thing Canadian business owners want to do. They're very loyal to their employees, but a lot of them are being forced to because it just doesn't make economic sense to keep their businesses open. And many of them are looking at the, the choice between the employees that they love and have worked for them for a long time and the viability of their business. And what is really important is to understand the linkages between the manufacturing sector and the resource sector. If I look on my street on Nugget Avenue in Scarborough, our business works at coating pipe and pieces for the resource sector. The gentleman across the street is a fabricator, and he fabricates large smokestacks, many of which go to the resource sector. And the fabricator beside him also makes parts for the resource sector. So if you look at our little ecosystem right there, there's three companies all located together that are all producing parts for the resource sector. And if you attack and bring down the resource sector, eventually those people that supply the resource sector are going to have nothing to do, and they have to look at relocating to those locations that will give them work. So we have a resource sector under stress, increasing stress, um, increasing bad political management from, from the nation's capital. In some cases, bad political management from their own provincial entities. So they now say that for us, it's a case of 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 survival, economic survival of our company. We don't want to go, and I've heard 
employers say this, but we don't see any other opportunity for us to stay in business. Plus, the Americans are call, calling us, contacting us, providing us with offers which are really quite tempting of, uh, you know, b- build your building, uh, cut your taxes for, or maybe make you uh, tax exempt in certain areas for up to 10 years. In other words, the Americans recognize what's going on in, in Canada in the energy sector and, and, and are, I don't want to use the word luring, maybe enticing uh, Canadian companies to move south. And then when those companies move south, the companies that do business with them, who are, that are, uh, that, as you're saying, that are located in Canada, say, well, what are we going to do? And then the Americans come calling there. It truly is a domino effect. And when you take out the largest, one of the largest employers in Canada, and then you take out all the suppliers to those very large employers, and you see the domino chain effect that goes. And if you think, just think back to fabrication of a part, a manufacturer in Ontario fabricates a part, then he sends it to somebody to paint, like our company. And then it goes on a truck, and that truck drives across the province, and maybe that truck driver stops to eat or to get gas or to stay somewhere or buy a gift for their family. And then you start to understand the huge domino effect of bringing down that resource sector and the fact that there's nothing that's going to replace that. And then you add to that the great incentive to relocate your business. And as you said, it will build you, uh, will build you a building will make your taxes exempt for 10 years, will let your employees, will help them get green cards, will get your uh, employees' spouses to have tax exemption for 10 years. It just really adds up, and the incentives become too good to pass up. And then you exacerbate that by looking at the LNG project. An LNG project is one of the largest projects in Canada, and our, our finance minister, Bill Morneau, waived the the tariffs on that and gave them tax credits. So now that huge project that could have been manufactured here are, is going to be manufactured in parts and pieces in China and be, being brought over because these tariffs have been waived. So effectively, we've shut out all of our fabricators, all of our coders from this huge, large project that we could have contributed to. And imagine the job. So, so it's just it's just by a thousand cuts. Jocelyn, what explanation do they give when you talk to the politicians, when you when you have these conversations with them? Because they're aware. By the way, is this a national reality where, where Canadian businesses are moving to the United States, or is it largely restricted to the energy sector and companies that do business with the energy sector? I believe this is a national crisis that the federal government is just tone deaf to. And at first, I believe that their policies um, were just these were unaccountable unintended consequences of their policy. But subsequently, I honestly believe this is a policy by design. They believe the resource sector is dirty, is antiquated, and the manufacturing also. The faster they can get rid of us, the faster they believe they can get to Nirvana, which is they're going to be software companies. We're going to be California. But really, California isn't even like they claim California to be because there's more manufacturing plants and there's more pipelines well, in California than there is here. Well, we, so it's you, really you, a false narrative. We know and we've heard from you and we've heard from uh, a friend of yours who's on this program whose business moved his business to Virginia for exactly the reasons that you pointed out. We know that these companies are not disappearing. They're simply changing uh, jurisdictions. They're moving to the United States. Their fear is if they stayed in Canada under the jurisdiction, uh, the jurisdictions and 
and, and the regulations they have to live with here. They would disappear. The option for them is to go to the United States. So they're, not, they're going to bring prosperity to the U.S. I would also look at this. In 2009, when the rest of the world was struggling really significantly with the Great Recession, Canada generally did far better than most other countries. And one of the reasons that we did far better than most other countries is we had diversity in our, in our, in our economy, and the energy sector was something that was there that provided a, a significant backstop. Yeah, well, it was, still wasn't operating at maximum capacity, but it was providing a financial backstop. We, have, we had things in place in 2009. I don't think we have them in place in 2019. No, we don't. And and you're right. The the resource sector provided a, a, a soft landing and a buffer to all of the upheaval that was happening. And now, not because of outside forces, but because of our government's own policy, we've decided to restrict and curtail the growth of that industry. And remember, it's, this is the cleanest uh, energy sector in the world. That's, the a, good, that that's, that's a point that needs to be repeated. Absolutely, and the one that gives its workers the best uh, rights and salaries uh, in the world. And the the reality is fossil fuel demand is going to go up as uh, countries become more modernized. They want to heat their houses. They want to light their homes. And where do we want them to buy their energy from? Our clean energy, which could also help uh, our liquefied natural gas, could help China come off coal. Wouldn't it be smarter for us to take our clean energy and export that to the world and help reduce the greenhouse yeah. gases globally? But uh, our government doesn't want to do that. And then you add carbon pricing. I'll just give you a sample. Jocelyn, let me get you to let me get you to hold on. I have to take a break, okay. and and we'll come back and we'll hear more of what Jocelyn Bamford has to say to us. I'm also curious whether her uh, the manufacturing and and uh, business uh, coalition in, uh, in in Canada. Is, is expanding, where the new people or companies are joining all the time. I was looking on uh, Twitter for that um, tweet about the company that's moving at the end of 2020, and I just can't find it. But I do, do see from at Sanford185 on uh, the issue of uh, Canadian companies moving to the United States. Uh, at Sanford85 tweets, the price of electricity is driving them south, and that is certainly something that we've spoken with uh, Jocelyn Bamford about, president and founder of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. A couple of things here, just before you pick up on the point, we only have three minutes. Uh, is your is your coalition expanding? Are, are more companies joining and expressing concerns about the possibility for them to remain viable within Canada, Jocelyn? And secondly, where does the price of electricity factor into the overall equation. So so yes, people are, are coming to us and we you know we have no full time staff. We're just a ground uh, roots uh, company or organization and it's just basically word of mouth as we as uh, members talk to other members and, and as they see some business um, organizations that they have belonged to not really representing their self interest. And if you look at some business associations, they've started to take NGOs and government uh, organizations as part, and their really focus is shifting from pure business advocacy to other things. And so, yeah, yes, we see our association growing, and yes, we see electricity is still as a very expensive cost to doing business 
in Ontario. So I let me let me do this. Let me let me do this, please, so I don't so I don't don't miss out on it, yeah. because we're transitioning of the shows, looking at 2019 and then looking ahead to 2020. What do you foresee in the months to come, in throughout to 2020, as far as this whole issue? of Canadian companies long established in whatever sector they are, energy or otherwise, manufacturing, or as, as you know, the, 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 the sector that you're involved in. What, what is going to happen as far as Canadian companies pulling up stakes and moving south and listening to the American siren song uh, over the next 12 months? What's going to happen? There's going to be more. And I'll talk to you about a company in Burlington that just decided, uh, had at, at its height, um, did fabrication for the resource sector, making pipes, etc. is just closing up. They've laid off all of their staff, they've sold their buildings, and the owner's retiring. So those are companies that are just closing. Some are moving, some are closing, some are going bankrupt, and some are selling out. And that will continue, especially as we find energy unaffordable and the carbon tax and electricity pricing crippling. And, and if you look at you know, I sampled my members and said, tell me what your carbon tax is going to be in 2019 and 2022. And we see um, a, a wide range from the high of millions of dollars to the low of, of 6000 in 2019 going up to 14000 in 2022. So it's a huge range. It impacts people's abilities to stay viable. And, of course, products coming in from China don't have to deal with carbon tax and unaffordable energy, but the people here are forced to compete with that, and there's no balancing of the equation by so any government policy. In, in the 35 seconds we have left, how can they change that? What's, what, what can be done, what needs to be done, and what can be done to change yeah. this situation from what it is? Get rid of carbon tax, bring in affordable electricity, and streamline our tax regime to have it competitive to keep jobs here in Canada. Jocelyn, thanks for the time uh, today. Thanks for joining us uh, earlier in the year and making me aware of what was going on with the the Canadian companies moving to the United States, and you've certainly provided us with company owners who are doing exactly that. Good talking to you again. I hope the situation, well, we have to do more than hope the situation improves because there's a lot at stake. Thanks, Jocelyn. Thanks, Roy. It's an honor to speak with you and you're a voice and reason where there seems to be very lacking in uh, journalism in Canada. Yeah, you're very kind. We appreciate you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and your listeners as well. Thank you. Jocelyn Bamford, who's the founder and president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.